Hi, this is Azimuth World Foundation's podcast, Connecting the Dots. With the help of our guests, we will be connecting the dots between matters of access to public health and safe water and the balance between humankind and nature among indigenous and rural communities. So here we are once again for another engaging conversation, which is precisely one of Asimov's World Foundation schools. We want to engage our community through these talks and shed light on issues that are important, that are urgent, and that really need addressing. I'm Mariana Marx, Executive Director of Asimov's World Foundation, an organization dedicated to advancing access to public health and safe water and promoting as well the balance between humankind and nature among indigenous and rural communities. And we're very grateful that Carson Kiburu found the time to talk to us about the many issues surrounding indigenous communities in Kenya. Carson is a member of the Enderoys uh, of Kenya. He's a youth leader and community organizer, a dedicated defender of indigenous rights with extensive human rights background. He's the executive director of Jami Azilia Center, an indigenous-led NGO founded in 2019 to protect and promote the rights of indigenous peoples in Kenya. He's also a board member at Major Group for Children and Youth. And on top of that, he's also currently co-sharing the UN's Global Indigenous Youth Caucus. Hello, Carson. Good afternoon to you. You're in Kenya, and thank you so much for joining us today. We are really grateful for the privilege of having an Indigenous youth leader talk to us about the issues Indigenous peoples face in Kenya, which are many of them global issues that other Indigenous communities face in so many parts of the world. So first, I would like to start by asking you, when was it that you realized you wanted to work on promoting Indigenous rights? Thank you so much, Mariana. Uh, I appreciate um, as a World Foundation finding time to do this incredible work of shining a light on um, the communities that you work with, the networks, uh, what they're doing, the incredible leadership uh, on the grassroots level. And um, yeah, I mentioned in grassroots level intentionally because that's where I found my calling. Um, I, I, I was born and bred in rural Kenya and uh, then, of course, Kenya was underdeveloped, way, way underdeveloped. And, um, of course, many of these issues I saw without even knowing uh, the part of indigeneity, I knew that a lot of change needed to happen there. Um, if our viewers can be able to see this, um, I have a, a scar on my left side of my, my, on my forehead. Uh, I got it when I was a kid, uh, around seven years old. And it's linked to what I'm about to say that it gave me uh, the, the, the strong heart to make a change within my indigenous people's community. But then again, after seeing the struggle uh, for our land rights, the elders, because it is as long as my age right now, uh, mm -hmm. a struggle that stretches over 50 decades since the the government evicted our people from our ancestral land in 1973. And in, in, when I saw um, them fighting for our rights and being vilified by the government or by our neighboring communities uh, for just standing for our rights and for being who we are, uh, I felt like 
why aren't they being given enough space? And when we won the case against the government of Kenya in 2009, 2010, at the African Court on Human and People's Rights, I saw the recommendations from the court um, that they were incredible and it would change um, it would change our lives. It would change, including not seeing more youth or more children falling from trees or falling from uh, rocks when they are fi- trying to find water. That's what happened to me. And mm-hmm. it inspired me to change this uh, by the age of seven. And now in 2010, when I was um, now a young person in this community of the Endoroids, I felt like I need to support my elders because it's been a long fight and I saw the energy was running out. Uh, the energy levels were running out and that uh, and the, the effect of assimilation was creeping in and we're not being told, we were being told by everyone and every, anyone that we need to be together. Of course, we need to be together. Unity is a strong thing, but if, if unity that you're bringing disengages me from my ancestry or my language or my heritage. And so I started filming about the endorised peoples just to shine a light and to change that narrative of seeing the mainstream media uh, sharing our stories differently than what than, than, than the history on the ground. I'll share, share something to hand that question. Uh, think about an idea that you had in school that was completely different from your heritage or you read in a textbook that's di- that it disconnected you from your heritage and you're being told this is the ultimate truth that's in a textbook. So mm-hmm. I sought to change that. That's the story. I sought to change that. And when, when I was growing up, I always wanted to be either a journalist or, um, or a lawyer or an advocate <laughs> of, to, to, so that yeah. I can speak for my people and to say the truth. Thank you so much. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, Karsten, as you're a spokesperson for your community. And you were just now saying that uh, you did start to filming the Enderize uh, um, tradition, uh, tradition. And we've read that you were also filming oral tradition, traditions, uh, which is one of your advocacy projects. But could you share with us also, why is it so important of keeping these records of oral traditions. You already talked a little bit about the real story, which can be different from books, but if we could hear a little bit more what it really represents for you and your community. That is very important. Um, One of the names that I was given by my parents, my middle name, actually the the name that you see right there, Carson, the the Kipuro. Mm -hmm. Um, I can trace to my sixth generation ancestor. So I felt like I am disconnected from that ancestor because I don't speak the language that they spoke. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see the culture, the rich culture, the millennia of rich ancestry uh, present right now because we've been told over and over with extreme westernization that is sweeping across the world that, for example, our way of worship is witchcraft. Think about that. Or mm-hmm. that your way of dressing is uncivilized or your way of speaking is uncivilized. So it challenged me and I thought I need to bridge this gap. And so the importance is the intergenerational knowledge transfer. This, this millennia of knowledge, where is it mm-hmm. going? Um, and, and are we going to lose this? Are we going to lose our ancestry, our sovereignty, our food, 
our culture. So I thought of why not preserve and transmit this culture? And it starts by just telling the stories, sitting with the elders, ask them the questions that no one asks them. So that is the motivation to, to be a bridge to, to the future and the bridge to where we are right now and the past where we've come from. <laughs> I absolutely liked uh, also what you just said about being this, this bridge, right? And between all that knowledge and the wise side that elderly have and the new things that the new generations can also bring. So uh, I think that's remarkable to, to find this, these bridges and, uh, and to be then a spokesperson. And that, that takes me to, to a question that, you know, uh, you do have an extensive training in human rights, uh, both from your graduate education and also your very express, impressive experience with UN and also other international institutions. So how important is it for Indoroy's youth to be able to attend college and bring back this kind of experience to their communities? And also, do you think that, um, do you feel like having Indoroy's uh, graduates who promote recognition and appreciation of traditional knowledge in graduate research and policy making? How is that, you know, how important it is? <laughs> This, this is very important, and I'm really grateful that you thought of asking this question because um, the education that we do have in my, in my community, just not because uh, from the age of elders who are six, 50, 60 years now and, to, and below, those are the people who've gone to school and it's not like they graduated. And so um, we see them struggling in relating to policy processes, for example. And remember I say um, the, 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 the huge influence of the, West, the Western type of um, orientation, be it education, uh, religion, that is, um, I, I say that before, but it's important to say this. Um, it, it, it puts down the level of self-esteem of, of how people are, are to know uh, and to, to, to feel for who they are as a people. And so it's important when you go to school, you, be, you, you go through that process and you come back to decolonize and know that, oh, uh, this is who I am. I am, I am an Indorize. Uh, for example, I am, an, I am a Maasai. Uh, I am like these and these ethnic group. This is my background. I appreciate it. And these are the challenges of my people. These are the, this is the beauty of my people. Uh, this, is, this is a very great characteristic of my people. And with all these things in mind, if you are, you've gone to school, you've gone to college, you've gone through uh, paralegal training like myself. So the importance, the importance of that is that you will appreciate your, 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 your past and the future of your people. And what will happen is you will be able to analyze policies that affect your pe the people. The world is fast moving and we're part of the humankind. We're not isolated and we need to participate uh, full soon to be able to self-determine our future, that is. Well, Carson, thank you so much for, you know, for sharing with us how important it is. Um, so, you know, maybe... Tell us, Garson, tell us a little bit about the current situation of indigenous peoples in Kenya. 
do you find the Kenyan government still feels solidarity among pastoralist communities as it did in the 90s when it read uh, that Alashek could expose, you know, the marginalization that indigenous communities had suffered for so long? Yeah, uh, not really. Uh, the government still see as, as, a, as a threat, which is wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. We have other threats like Al-Shabaab, which is different ideology than this one. For us, it's about our future. It's about everyone, actually, literally, we, who lives in Kenya. It's about you as a, mm -hmm. as a person uh, to determine your future. And so they don't see that. Even uh, after passing, after promulgation of the Constitution of Kenya in 2010, uh, the mm -hmm. steps have been painfully slow. For example... Uh, there are very progressive legislations in Article 59, uh, which they have created um, commissions. Uh, for example, the, the Ombudsman's Office, uh, the National Gender and Equality Commission, uh, the Kenya National Commission on Human, uh, I mean, Kenya National Commission on Human Rights. The very progressive commissions and legislations mm -hmm. that have been passed. But if mm -hmm. you look at Article 56, mentions um, uh, mentions ethnic minorities and, and marginalized groups. But also, if you look at Article 100, uh, and it, it states that the parliament shall enact laws uh, to look into uh, this, the, the, the promotion of the rights of ethnic minorities and marginalized peoples, we're not even at the lowest hanging fruit of that legislation, which is a very strong piece, uh, that empowers, for example, the indigenous peoples. And so I would say we're still far from that because we're seen as a threat when we come together. Uh, but of course, uh, this is a free country. Uh, the Bill of Rights in the Constitution, I should mention, is very progressive, uh, empowers the citizen of this country. And, and it, should stay, it should stay that way because we are advocating for more legislations or enactments uh, by the parliament to be able to assist the indigenous people, to be able to help the indigenous peoples to achieve more self-determination. Uh, and uh, just to mention that uh, we see rulings from the high court about uh, developments in Kenya, uh, where it involves these multinational corporations or even big companies, for example, from China or, or, or the U.S. And so... Uh, We've seen some rulings about from the indigenous communities asking for their participation in these development projects. And the rulings don't reflect uh, an informed uh, judiciary, so to say. Uh, because if you look at the way they mentioned, for example, United Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples or mm -hmm. ILO 169, it's not as informed as, as they should. So I st we're still a long way uh, down the line. So um, th that is the situation as we talk right now. But most indigenous peoples are realizing that there are more powers in the constitution of Kenya and they're going to court. And the, the high court right now is a progressive uh, part of the judiciary of Kenya where there's much more hope. What will be one or two main uh, policies that you would actually would like the government to implement that will help your, your community and other indigenous communities in Kenya? For example, uh, the Community Land Act 2016 
gives a lot of uh, power to the indigenous people. What is needed is the capacity development of these uh, communities or the indigenous communities living um, in these rural areas or in the forests to be able to understand and to be able to partake in this legislation. Uh, but most importantly, uh, the government needs to, to, to ratify, for example, and to and to domesticate the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, because it's not only important to Indigenous peoples, but it is important even to the Kenyan state. And more so, it will anchor the Community Land Act 2016 uh, very uh, progressively, I would say so, because uh, right now uh, they need, for example, to appoint uh, a community land registrar, for example. They do have registrars in other sections, uh, be it in um, proper, uh, private property or, or anything else, but they have not done this one because, of course, they know that so many communities will come forward and you uh, and, and participate in this and some other piece of legislation that needs to be to be um, devolved. In Kenya, uh, we have divorce devolved system of governance. We do have uh, county governments, and within the county governments. They, the, the government needs to, uh, to build the capacity of the, for example, the, 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 the legislations at the county government or the county level where we have the county, uh, county assemblies. This will help uh, the, the rural communities where indigenous peoples live to be able to participate in these rights. Good. Well, that's that's remarkable, uh, Carson. It's wonderful to see there is this, this step towards conversation and 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 and, and change. And um, a while ago, already in the in the beginning of our conversation, you, you briefly talked about when you were a young a young uh, boy, you know, fetching water. And um, you know, our organization, as you know, it's really focused on. Um, providing uh, access to, to safe water in communities around the world. Not only is a human right, um, and it really is important for health-wise, but also it has other sorts of impacts, uh, in particularly economical impacts, you know, and also related also even with education. And how relevant are the issues of access to health and safe water and their dependency on a healthy environment to Kenya's pastoralist communities? I like the way you put the question that uh, water is cross-cutting um, because it touches on almost everything. And for a pastoral, pastoralist, um, it's our way of life. And I started earlier by mentioning that story about my childhood. And mm -hmm. I have seen that situation worsening and worsening. When I was seven years old, uh, we, had gone, we had gone to a dry riverbank uh, a dry riverbed in my community. So we had gone with my mother and she was, she, she was just right there doing some laundry uh, and we're playing with other kids. Of course, there are lots of stones and um, I fell from um, a six foot tree and I, mm. I hurt my, um, myself and I was in a coma for more than 12 hours. Uh, but that is not the story. So the story is I am here today, but there's still more kids uh, who still fall uh, into the same problem right now, uh, be it uh, they fell on, on, uh, by, the, by the rocks or by the stones we were trying to get water. And the situation is worse right now. And as we head into the more drier season, uh, January and February, it's going to be much more worse, much more drier. And mm -hmm. for us as a pastoralist community, uh, it is a very difficult because 
the, the dry lands and the pasture is diminishing day by day. And we've had to cut down because of this effect of climate change. We've had to cut down the number of uh, livestock that we do have. And that affects our life, life uh, our way of life. And we've seen also fights among uh, some communities that live uh, alongside uh, my community. And uh, we're being pushed uh, to lose much more land than we used to be. Remember that I'm saying that for us, it's community land where we partition, uh, the elders partition, they close a certain part of the land and say, for this season, we used to grass. And for this season, we will jump to this season, right? to, this, uh, to, this, to this field, and we will go to the next field. So for the protection of biodiversity. And right now, because we, we are losing uh, that biodiversity and the ecological ecosystem more than before, we see a breakdown. We see uh, uh, rural urban migration, and our people are losing their cultures, they are losing their livelihoods, their lifestyle, and everything. And so to link back to water, it is affecting the health, it is affecting, affecting uh, the life of, 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 of our mothers or of, of, our, of our women, uh, because they, they are the ones who bear the brunt more than, for example, the men, because men would go take care of the, of the livestock. And they leave women with the young kids, for example, mm-hmm. and to fend for the, for the entire family, uh, to get water, to do all these. It doesn't mean that also the men are not undergoing the hard time, but um, the women and, and the young children undergo this more than anyone else. And they need, they need of dire uh, health, more uh, like in an urgent way. Uh, but most importantly, these ways would be to help them to adapt and to stay resilient in these uncertain times, in these in this most defining time of um, of of humanity, that is within the, the climate change discourse, and and we are now moving towards small older farms. We're doing now agroecology or um, agropastoralism. But most importantly, over the last five years, we've had we've seen an exponential rise in water levels. Uh, within our lake systems, Lake Bogoria and Lake Baringo. And lots of our people have been displaced and we've lost public facilities like uh, health centers or schools or playing fields. And most importantly, even cultural centers where we used to um, celebrate uh, our cultures of our people and everything. And so, like I was saying, we need to stay resilient and to be able to carry these heritage to the next generation. But if doing that, we're being we're crippled and we'll not be in a position to be able to help ourselves. And you know, you did touch a very important thing about, you know, uh, also how the climate change is impacting um uh in particular Kenya and 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 the lands we're living. Not only you have the climate, the pressure of climate change, but then unfortunately also have the pressure for the extraction of natural resources. Because then, unfortunately, what we've seen is that indigenous communities then are the first ones to suffer from all this. And it's it's quite unfair. And I would like to talk about how important is the work that your organization is doing as well. Um, you know, you, you co-founded the Jami Zilia Center in 2019 to promote the rights of indigenous peoples in Kenya. What led you to start this organization? The, the inspiration 
has always been uh, volunteering. My team, I, I do have a, a team that you that, that they are they've been listed on our, on our website, but I have one very important uh, member of that board. His name is uh, Barasa uh, Washington Barasa, and uh, we we thought of us. We had this conversation and like. Uh, what, why these things? Why things are the way they are in my community, or in a neighboring indigenous community, or why do we see the uh, the, the 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 gap between, for example, those elders who've come before us? They fought the fight. Uh, they won some. They lost most of it, and they're running out of energy. And there's no bridge between them and and the next generation. So, I thought. Why well, need a vehicle that would understand this? And he also told me that he thinks the same way. And we put down our goals and our vision, and it was incredible. And we had more colleagues joining in, and we created and we registered Jamia Sugia Center to do this specifically, just to, to, to amplify the voices of indigenous peoples in Kenya, not only the Endorais. And so it is indigenous-led because I am an Endorais. Um, and it is youthless because I am still a youth and I'm still a young person right now. Uh, but most importantly, it's way beyond just being youth-led because uh, it's, it's serving uh, the entire community. And we have women in the board who are very vibrant human rights defenders. And we have staff who are uh, human rights defenders as well. And they're very, um, they're very, very, uh, I would say exceptional uh, advocacy officers doing their incredible work. We're just supporting everyone, the elders in these communities. We will work with them. We work with the international partners. We work with community-based um, organizations just to do that specifically, to empower them with um, culturally sensitive solutions to their socioeconomic and political well-being as indigenous identifying peoples. <laughs> Thank you, Carson. Um, uh, maybe if you could share more your thoughts about how important it is to have an indigenous women program at JAC. You, I believe in this, um, that for me to, 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 to talk about meaningful youth engagement, for example, I am a youth. And that means that I am well suited to do that. What about women issues, for example? So women issues means that uh, women issues are better advocated for or led by uh, women. And so they understand. And, and I remember I mentioned that culturally sensitive solutions. And so women leadership, women program is coordinated and read entirely by women. Uh, they help in the design uh, implement and implementation in the design and implementation of these uh, programs, which are entirely for women. And so for us, we just complement that incredible leadership of women in my community. It's, uh, mm -hmm. I am so glad that even my community recognizes that international fact, which is agreed even in sustainable development goals, that uh, it's good to have those people that you're talking about to be on the table. The message is, is, is home when it is led, when it is designed by implemented by and led completely led by women one of the main focus of your organization and is climate change and biodiversity and you your organization did a serious research work 
and you said that before on the rising water levels in the systems, in the lake systems of the indigenous and the rise and also Ilkamus, if I'm saying the, the name right, in Lake no Boria and Lake Baringo. Do you feel like many issues affecting indigenous communities in Kenya are aggravated by the lack of data gathering and analysis? Yes, yes, I I I absolutely agree with that question. Um, there's less and less uh, research on these areas, or when it is done, um, it's not as aggregated uh, to indicate that these are indigenous peoples and would just say that um, this research was done in this county or in this district, but it doesn't say um, expressly say, for example, that um, this is an indigenous community, uh, this is an indigenous people's land uh, or, um, or, or a people. But the challenge is most of the research that is done uh, were being bypassed, you see? I mean, uh, research organizations who come to our communities, do research and go away with uh, our data without paying attention to um, data privacy or free prior and informed consent, mm -hmm. which is the basic minimum for indigenous peoples, for example. For research, it's important that uh, research, um, research NGOs or research companies or research uh, entities should involve our people by uh, free prior and informed consent as a very important as a very important component of self determination and there is less and less and we welcome more and more research into our communities to look for to fuse this modern science with our own indigenous science hopefully you know our organizations are listening and and, and more and more they will pay attention to that. As a Muth, we see ourselves as an ally organization to, to indigenous and, and, and rural uh, root causes and issues. It's, it's about being an ally, exactly this, the organizations being allies and, and help uh, indigenous uh, community organizations like Jamie Azilia and others and even the communities and to have a collaboration to, to help and not impose I hope that you know we can still see more and more th these organizations, like you're saying, to work closely and it has allies um, with with indigenous uh, organizations. It's important that above all that we listen uh, what indigenous peoples have to say. Uh, Carson, going back still about you know this this research that you did and and it, 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 this very important research that you did uh, regarding the uh, both lakes, um, did it impacted any government policy? Your findings? Um, yes, it did, uh, but, but we were not credited. Sadly, <laughs> yeah, it did because uh, once we we uh, we embarked on this research. Um, we, uh, we wanted the partnership, we badly wanted the partnership of the government, but of course we are non-governmental and uh, we sent out letters. Uh, we went to them, their offices, booked appointments, um, told them what we were about to do, went to the community, told them that this is, what, this is where we can partner on. Um, but then uh, they just backtracked uh, and they let us do the work, the heavy lifting. Uh, and once it was done, uh, we just saw, we shared the report as well because the guy, it's not like we were duty bound to do that, but uh, 
we shared our reports to, to government agencies, other NGOs, uh, the community, because it wasn't our own research as well. Of course, we honed the process and the publishing of the document, uh, but it was a lobby document coming from uh, the two indigenous communities from where I come from, uh, in where, at where I come from. Uh, we are happy, but we're not happy as, uh, as much because we wanted to begin this process, for example, with a memorandum of understanding and bringing our people and doing this. So we see our reports being stolen and not being used well. We've learned our lessons. Probably there was a process that we skipped. Probably we should have published very well in a journal, for example. Uh, uh, but to answer your question, uh, it was helpful for my community, for the neighboring community, the Chamos and the entire Baringo County uh, to do that case study and, and how people feel like they feel felt that having their, their children uh, do this on their behalf was very important for them. And so uh, that's where we are. Uh, it helped them. It is, uh, it's helping the government to share policies. We're being called to some few meetings here and there uh, to share those findings. Uh, but it is effective. it's being affected because uh, we endeavor to do this to benefit our people, uh, whether mm -hmm. through us or by anyone else. Well, <laughs> it's unfortunate that uh, that didn't happen. You know, the acknowledgments, hopefully we will see more of that. In, in the future that your contributions, you know, will be validated. Okay, so, you know, we still are living this pandemic, right? Um, and, um, you know, uh, we aren't going to the third year, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, all the inequalities that still exist if we think about vaccinations and how they're being distributed. And also at the same time, governments, you know, put in place, you know, a lot of restrictions and lockdowns, and that had a huge impact, especially, you know, uh, when it comes to in, in many countries with tourism, but how did it impact uh, the pandemic, uh, in particular your community? Because it's not only the restrictions and also, you know, all the lockdowns, but also, around the world, we've seen a surge of, you know, human rights violations um, around the world. Not, not, I'm not talking particular your, your, uh, in, in your country, but it, it's, it's something that it's been, um, you know, witnessed around and around the world from all sorts of uh, countries. So, but I would like to hear from you, how did a pandemic impacted your community? And what are the takeaways that your community has learned from all this? Just like any other any other community in the entire world um, who are members of the humankind, uh, we were worried that uh, we were going to be wiped out of the face of the earth. And uh, we didn't know what it was. Uh, so many uh, facts were flying around. But most importantly, a lot, a lot of... Um, improper information, I'd say misinformation was also going around uh, that fed into a lot of uh, misconceptions. And so our people feared, created a fear to, to go to hospital uh, when schools were closed. Like families were staying now with their kids uh, full time, something that had never happened uh, before. And so we saw 
uh, a lot of um, indiscipline cases or uh, we lost uh, a generation of young women into teenage pregnancies and they couldn't go back to school. Uh, their lives were destroyed. And even if they go, it's not like as it used to be. Uh, and even for young men, they engaged in improper behaviors, uh, became criminals or um, uh, violations in, within the law. Or uh, uh, And massive lost jobs happened around here more than anywhere else in the world. And so um, we lost a lot that we don't know when we will recover. Uh, but most importantly is, for example, for women health, um, most of our pregnant uh, or expectant mothers feared to go to hospital. And it's just recently that they started doing uh, going to the hospital uh, to be um, attended to. And we lost some women and a lot of babies, uh, sadly. Uh, I'm talking about my community, so they are affected heavily. Uh, and of course, it goes without saying that uh, my community could not do lots of its uh, festivals or ceremonies that are very important to our cultures uh, because of the pandemic again. And so, or even some had to be done uh, within a wrong season where there's mm -hmm. no food, no enough food because people. Um, it also coincided during a time that there were no enough, um, we didn't have enough food. And so those are the challenges that we experience and we still experience today, uh, of course, with the other challenges like the climate change now uh, as, a, as a continuing threat to our livelihood. The government also thinks that they do have a responsibility to get more taxes or something, and they still continue doing that because they believe a lot of people went to digital um, business, which which is was a vibrant technology, which was a vibrant market in Kenya, but indigenous communities uh, are largely rural, and they're yet to tap into that market as well. So mm -hmm. there's lots and lots of um, overarching uh, challenges that will that that continues to, to 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 affect our people in during this time of the pandemic. Um, the vaccine reach uh, is still far from that. Rich. I would say that we may not be, uh, it may not be as fertile as anywhere in the world around here, but of course we're losing uh, the elders at, a, uh, um, at an alarming rate and the elders here around here is oral tradition. It, and so losing the elders is the latest loss that we have seen and it's affecting our people heavily. Um, and they've not been vaccinated. Um, I come from a tourist site uh, that is Lake Bogoria and Lake Baringo, uh, where the, the, we used to, ex to, to get a lot of uh, tourists before the pandemic. And uh, since the pandemic, we've never seen that. Uh, we were expecting that this December to January, when you guys are experiencing extreme cold, this is the time that you usually visit uh, Kenya or Africa or any tropical place. <laughs> And we were expecting that this was going to be the time. Unfortunately, you can't come because of the new uh, strain, for example. Uh, the tourism industry is big around here. We do have amazing places to visit, but that mm -hmm. is also falling on the rocks. And so that means socioeconomic and uh, socioeconomically, we're down. Last but not least, our people were, were not able to, and we're still not able to participate in policy processes of the government. Uh, because mm -hmm. we cannot have large uh, groupings to discuss policy processes or frameworks that affect our people. And mm -hmm. we've seen some 
affecting the free prior and informed consent. They call it around here, um, uh, they, they call it, it's like a consultation. You get to the people, ask them, we want, we want to bring this, uh, this dump, for example. But now we see the government just coming directly and saying, in the pretext of COVID, we uh, we couldn't meet with the people, but we need this development right away because they've signed some concessions about loans and anything, and they want to bring the money. And we just happen and we see, oh, there's a big dam going on. There's a big uh, river. There's a pipeline, for example, or water line cutting through villages that we were not told about. And so those are the effects of COVID regime. Well. Carson, thank you so much for sharing with us the struggles that you're facing with this pandemic as well. I think it's important for us to hear what is happening, you know, in, in different parts of the world and how the damage that this pandemic has been creating, in particular in indigenous communities and how difficult it is, you know, the daily life. But, you know, we're we're finalizing almost our interview, Carson. I think we've been having just a, a great conversation. I still have you know, two or three questions before we end. And one uh, actually has to do um, when I introduce you to this in this conversation, when I make your introduction, you know, I also shared with our audience that you also co-share the UN's Global Indigenous Youth Caucus. Why is it so important that Indigenous communities come together to advance Indigenous rights and how has contact with indigenous activists from all over the world helped you shape your activism? Uh, it's important to start answering that question by saying that um, indigenous peoples' uh, rights are collective rights. It's, uh, we and governments have a struggle with that, understanding that, and even defining who are indigenous peoples or the indigeneity as well. So. Um, there is power in numbers. We are distinct populations, for example, and uh, we we draw our connection to ancestral lands or our way of life, which is the most important thing. Um, our spirituality, the biodiversity, and link to nature. And uh, when when I participated in international frameworks, I learned that uh, we are distinct, but we are large in numbers. And there's a lot to learn about the world. Uh, meeting allies here like yourself, for example, I know we've never met, but I've met people, incredible people like yourself who support the indigenous peoples. I learned that um, there's power in having the numbers, uh, people who support you, uh, who support your cause. Uh, they have challenges as yourself. You're not the only one. So it, um, it was therapeutic to learn, uh, to know, and to be able to be educated. Most importantly, I feel I feel like it it has been an apprenticeship journey. Uh, mm-hmm. I felt like uh, a young uh, blacksmith learning to sharpen um, a spear, for example. That's a way of our people of expressing that. So um, uh, they say, "An iron sharpens another iron." So it's been a learning process, uh, learning from those who've come before us, learning that there was um, there are people who have gone through. Um, for example, this scourge of uh, colonialism way before us, 500 years ago. And mm-hmm. uh, they've been fighting to sustain their cultures. And it's important when I tell this to my people, they're like, uh, they, they, they feel incredible as well. And I do have an amazing team that keeps, um, keeps, uh, keeps me on toes as well, showing me the way, 
and not to lose my way from uh, from our people because that link is very important and that international link is very important as well because um, it's important that I that that, that these movement stays strong and we continue to fight for example for Mother Earth. Uh, we continue to fight for our rights, for the existence of this planet. If you look at the people in Amazon fighting for the existence of that ecosystem, that is um, thousands of millennia that still exists, that for us we've lost, for example, through Mm -hmm. migration or other things like you've mentioned, extraction of industries and the money markets, you see all these overconsumption and production models that has changed the world. I've learned all those and I've seen them. And so mm-hmm. some validates my points or my ideas or my elders' ideas or my colleagues' way. When I got to the, when I joined the Indigenous Youth Caucus, I, um, I, it was an incredible experience seeing young leaders from across the world, from all the seven corners of the world, uh, mm-hmm. from Australia, from Arctic, from, um, from Amazon, uh, from Abiyala, for example, um, Abiyala is uh, from the Panama area all the way to, um, to the Amazon, uh, from the Pacific. Uh, people, we share, we share the struggles, we share the challenges, and we sh- most importantly, we share that distinct um, definition of indigenous peoples. And Carson, you were also recently in Glasgow for the COP26. Um, what are your thoughts on what was achieved at the conference? Um, the single most important thing that was achieved, I would say, uh, for me as an indigenous rights um, advocate um, or um, a rights activist, is hankering the human rights text in Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. And when I say human rights, it's not just indigenous peoples, but we draw the same rights inside Article 6 uh, that have been now anchored from the Glasgow Pact. And so to me, over three years of hard work, I wasn't there during the last two COPs, uh, but I was, uh, I was there in spirit, of course, offline, reading and, mm-hmm. and, and learning the process. And when I went to COP26, it was, um, it was sort of, um, I would say, uh, uh, learning by seeing and learning by mm-hmm. uh, sitting behind our lead negotiators, for example, so I learned a lot about um, drafting um, uh, uh, all those texts and why it was important to retain Article 6.2 and 6.4 of that Paris Agreement, which is the human rights based, uh, human rights text that indigenous peoples drew uh, from. We saw uh, the G20 or these rich nations uh, pledging and these big corporations uh, pledging 1.7 billion of the 100 billion of climate finance. But um, so, so it's, a, it's a big step because it was pledged for indigenous pe- peoples, but also there's a, there's a challenge in that who are indigenous people. So the fight continues. We're now going to loss and damage in COP27 in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, there's a lot to be done. Uh, I would say I am cautiously hopeful out of COP26. Thank you, Carson. So my last question, Carson, uh, is um, how can organizations such as Asimov's World Foundation or even individuals to become better better allies for indigenous issues? How can we you know, improve? How can we engage? Would you share with us? 
Yes, yes. And thank you for inviting me to this interview. I can't mention that enough. I have to always thank say you. that. Because mm-hmm. this is one way of having allies just like yourself, uh, Asmuth um, World Foundation, reaching out to um, rural communities and indigenous-led NGOs or civil mm-hmm. society organizations that uh, work with indigenous-led organizations. Mm-hmm. And this is the most important way to build partnership. Uh, and the one thing that I would say beyond now here is um, it's important to engage the indigenous peoples from uh, the design to implementation of your programs or your activities, because that way uh, you have a proper partnership where you you know the challenges. Like right now, we've shared some challenges, uh, but but of course, uh, building on uh, their past experiences, their challenges, and what they want uh, for their communities. Uh, is very important so that you engage them from uh, program design uh, to implementation. And now you see them uh, flourish, but um, it's important that uh, you work with Indigenous-led communities more than Indigenous-led granting, sub-granting organizations uh, because we have the capacity uh, and we know how to talk about our issues. I, I guess that is what I was trying to achieve by saying meaningful participation it helps a lot when you work from the start to the end, and they would, uh, the indigenous peoples will appreciate that the most, more than anyone else. Thank you for listening to Connecting the Dots, an Azimuth World Foundation podcast. Join the conversation on our website, azimuthworldfoundation.org, or by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn.